Hey everyone, we're your hosts, Chinmay and Parth, and welcome back to Biocast. In today's episode, we'll be partnering up with a PhD candidate here at UNC with a podcast of his own, JP Flores, host of From Where Does It Stem, focusing on DEI and science. This episode will also be uploaded on his channel, so make sure you go check it out. In today's episode, we'll be interviewing Dr. Carolyn Luger, Distinguished Professor of Biochemistry at CU Boulder, and the scientist that not only discovered the nucleosome, but also the 3D structure of chromatin. We hope you guys enjoy. Uh, Dr. Luger, if you're listening to this, um, I realized in post that I called you Dr. Luger the entire time. I'm really sorry. I did not mean to do that. I promise I know what your name sounds like. <laughs> anyway, guys, I hope you guys enjoy the episode. This is one of my favorites. I was telling I was telling them before the call. I was like, Carolyn is really nice. Like, you're gonna be starstruck because they were nervous before this, and I was like, Carolyn is the <laughs> perfect first person for this. Yeah, please don't be nervous. There's no reason whatsoever to be nervous. About it. <laughs> and like like they said, if I use any cuss words, we can edit them out. So that's oh good. yeah. Because <laughs> I don't want to be like the president of Harvard who gets. Oh my. Oh yeah. They said that was horrible. That. Yeah, it was really yeah. bad. Yep. Yeah. Well, okay. can you first start? Can you um, first tell us about the wild stories of you, you know, being a badass in the wilderness? I know you're going on a on a vacation in a couple weeks, so can you walk us through that? Like, I I'm excited for you. What are you What are you up to? What are you doing? Um, well, I'm actually not not going to the wilderness, unfortunately. Uh, I used to be a badass. Uh, after my PhD, I actually um, with my husband we took a year off and we canoed down the entire Yukon River um, yeah. in our little rubber canoe. And, and fished and lived off the land. It was really fun. No, like in a couple of weeks, I'm going to Europe, to Stockholm, and to give talks and advisory boards and see my parents. So, you know, nothing super exciting. That's awesome. Yeah, That's yeah it's still good to get out, especially to see my parents. Yeah. 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 Were your parents scientists? No, no. My dad was an electrical engineer. My mom's a stay-at-home mom. My brothers are all like super smart geniuses in physics and electrical engineering and so i was always like the third the youngest trying wow. to keep up <laughs> yeah what was what was that like like just navigating the world of biology for the first time really on your own you know um i didn't have any guidance i just loved watching plants grow and i planted <laughs> a lot of seeds i wanted to be a botanist and and uh, so i really didn't know anything about it i had no formal training my teachers were not that great so you know i just kind of had to make it up as i went along there was no internet yeah, fair enough. at that time fair enough. Yeah. <laughs> that's very sad yeah um i think you mentioned earlier um how science wasn't really accessible to like women um like what advice would you offer to you know young women young scientists who aspire to follow a path similar to yours you know coming from a background of like physics and math and now doing biology yeah, I mean, just don't listen too much to other people who tell you you can't do it and try to put you into a specific mold. Um, and then really early on, try to find people who believe in you, mentors. Uh, usually what helps is if you find other uh, other people who are like you, whether you are URM or a woman, or, or uh, that really helps because they can relate to the more specific problems that you might encounter. But really, you know, I've had some fabulous male mentors as well who just realized that there was an issue there. Yeah. So I think just, you know, listen to the right kinds of people, I would say, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> not to the wrong ones. <laughs> yeah. How do you how do you know which ones are the right kinds of people, though? Like, 
Yeah, that is a super good question. I I I don't know. I think just go with your gut feeling and gotcha. and you know, you know in your core what you're capable of and and if you have little doubts and people come in and reinforce those doubts, that's probably not the best person to listen to. But it's more right. people who will recognize those doubts and say, yeah, I realize this is a limitation and, and this is what you might be able to do to overcome this. Those are the right kinds of people. Mm -hmm. yeah. That's great advice. Think, Don't listen think, to the haters. <laughs> no, basically, when I was a, a, a second year undergrad, actually, like your, um, we were couple of my friends and I we were kind of ranting against the situation and how science is really kind of close to women in a way they were not there were no role models and and this professors basically said oh I've had many female students like saying the same thing and now they're found their true destination they're happily married and they're raising families and we're like really like <laughs> <laughs> and we didn't know enough to 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 report him because at that time you didn't really do right. that but that really was not a good piece of advice so don't listen to these people <laughs> <laughs> yeah so on the topic of mentorship I, before i hit record i mentioned how i applied to the hhmi gilliam fellowship um what the hell is an hhmi investigator so i, I know the hhmi gilliam is a very mentor centric type of fellowship where you know the the advisor and the pair gets awarded uh, the advisor can go to hhmi and, and get you know training on on mentorship but I know that you are an HHMI investigator, which I think is different. So it's what is, very what different. Is, yes. Is, yeah. uh, so, so I don't know whether you all have seen the movie The Aviator um, with Brad Pitt. <laughs> it's about Howard Hughes, Mr. Hughes, and um, he he inherited a lot of money and made a lot of money. Was quite the visionary. Was also mentally very ill, and um, when he died, he left uh, without a will, and so. In order to avoid to pay taxes, it's my understanding that they started this HHMI program. And for a while, mm. it really didn't do very much. Uh, but then somebody took over and they turned it into a program where you can apply and they fund allegedly people, not projects. And so they, they look for people who they think have the potential to move science forward. And what is really unique about this program, they don't stick us all in a silo and have us all work together they leave us at our host institutions which i think is amazing because that way the ripple effect is much larger um, and you know we are quite well funded and we can help others move forward and we can kind of pass it along and 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 promote that idea of scientific excellence now it's it's really quite competitive and uh every five to seven years we have to be evaluated we go there um we have to present what we did the last five to seven years. Uh, what kind of papers did we publish? What kind of wow. what what did our mentees do? So they now place quite a bit of emphasis on mentoring as well. What are our former lab members up to now? Are they still doing science, or did they all disappear, disgusted from this whole enterprise? Um, and and you also have to put forward some some ideas for. What you want to do with the next in the next funding period and it has to be kind of visionary is maybe the wrong word but it has to be novel you can't just do the same old same old you have to have some fresh ideas um, so you know it's a really fantastic program because um, it really allows me to 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 pass it forward to my colleagues and and have a, a wider effect in the scientific enterprise 
Yeah, it sounds like a very uh, fancy schmancy you know, title. So speaking about like. <laughs> you no, know, actually no. Uh, it it it's really it tries very hard not to be elitist. Um, and I think part of it is really that they are leaving us where we are. It would be super elitist, I think, if they all whisked us away and put us into some gold-plated building, you know. And, and but that's not what's happening. So I really like that. I think that's really cool, though. Like it kind of started off as like a tax fraud kind of thing, and now it's like. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we, we might not want to put that in the podcast. Hey guys, uh, Chinmay and Post here. So I actually went and fact-checked what Dr. Luger said, and it is actually all correct. So we are good to go. Alright, now back to the episode. <laughs> but, but in a way, it was. You know, actually, it, it is. It is accurate. Uh, that's. But you know, I'm not that familiar with the exact history of this whole thing. But that's kind of how it started out. To all the listeners listening, make sure to pay your taxes. <laughs> <laughs> that that's very true. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so you said you get evaluated every five to seven years. Like, what have those? What has that timeline looked like for you? Um, so I've just been through my third renewal, and um, gotcha. well, yeah. So I've been I've been doing this for quite a while. I've been super fortunate, um, and you know, of course, uh, I can. I'm just a front person. Like I I live and die with the people in my lab and their dedication <laughs> and their hard work. And you know, that's awesome. all the way that's all awesome. the way to the undergrads. You know, they they all make important contributions. They all work really hard they know what's at stake and 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 so you know i've been lucky picking the right people who really contributed a lot to this yeah definitely so you're you've shown that you're a world-class mentor doing world-class science um and i think we have to congratulate you on winning the 2023 world laureates association prize right in life science through medicine yeah that was quite something (laughs) (laughs) can you talk a little bit about what this means for you personally and professionally like how does it impact your work moving forward so uh, so this is uh kind of they also call it the chinese nobel prize um and it was awarded for the work i did as a postdoc so like almost uh like back in 1997 um and it was awarded to um, my co-mentor as well as to a person who became who who did work before my mentor was even involved in this and so we're all awarded this prize together for work we did as postdocs kind of building on each other's expertise and it's for the structure determination of the nucleosome which is now in every textbook and um, to me you know it, it was like i'm a little ambivalent about prices because um it can be a little arbitrary if you will because it takes a lot of time to to promote people to to put them forward for prices it's actually a lot of work on behalf of the nominators and so if you don't have a strong believer in you then you don't really get nominated even if you do really fabulous work but having said that i was super happy for for the nucleosome which i think is like um you know piece of of common knowledge and and part of the of the science landscape and i was really happy that the nucleus of got this prize shall we say and i really think it, it was like the awardee of this of this whole prize it was really fantastic i went there and i didn't know what to expect and and they i mean they treat scientists like rock stars over there i felt like beyonce it was, it was amazing <laughs> so it was really a lot of fun and then you know after a week um we had to come back and like, oh, now I have to cook my own dinner again. That's kind of 
Yeah, is that is that when you asked me for a clip from from where is it? Yeah, yeah, that's exactly yeah. what I, because I I did kind of a general. Uh, they 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 wanted background information uh, that mm. was relatable because they did a lot of press events there, and so uh, it's quite possible that a few. Uh, quite a few people in China listen to your podcast because I really like that podcast. I think that was a lot of fun. Uh, it was very fun. Yeah, I listen to it a lot actually. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> At least, I'm not even. I'm not even sure what to say about that. <laughs> I think you need to get a life. <laughs> if that's your, if that's your idea of entertainment, I'm, I'm a little concerned. <laughs> So I guess you talked a little bit about your journey, like to the prize. But can you talk about your journey, like as a scientist in general, like how you started off with your experiments,、um, like just the、yeah. upward journey to finally winning the Nobel Prize of China? <laughs> <Yeah> . Well, <laughs> what can I say?、Um, like, I guess I started out、uh, just always trying to keep up with my brothers. And I, 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 I really like I really like plants, and so I thought, well, you know, I I could do botany, but that didn't really sound like there were a lot of job opportunities, and so I went to the nearest university、um, and I studied microbiology, which was kind of the closest to this vague idea of molecular things I wanted to work on, and you know, it was not it wasn't the greatest.、Uh, they they were really focused on taxonomy, and so we spent a lot of time counting. Warts on mushroom spores and things like that, <laughs>、uh, but but I I did live I, I did live、uh, right next to the biochemistry department, and at that time biochemistry wasn't even a major, and I I started to go to their seminars, and you know it was horrible I didn't understand a single word I just sat in the back and and I was like oh my god one of these days I will understand all of this <laughs> I was just like riveted and and I really don't. Can't explain why, but they noticed me, and then they adopted me in their lab, and they, and I started to to work as an undergrad in their lab, doing you know just everything was exciting, like making a DNA mini prep and and running a gel, and and you know then you know I left the lid off a centrifuge and almost broke it. I mean it's just like the whole thing was just、uh, very exciting, <laughs> and、um, and that's kind of how I got hooked. Uh, on on doing research,、uh, nothing worked. It was really quite frustrating.、Um, and then I went to to do my PhD.、Um, uh, at that stage, I don't actually think I contemplated much whether I should do anything else. I just was kind of seen the obvious choice.、Uh, and maybe people suggested to me that I could do it. And you know, that's kind of this. Subversive mentoring that I got, possibly that people thought like, yeah, you might be quite good at it. I I will say I think looking back now, I have a lot of undergrads in my lab, and there are some that are very intense, and I really see myself in them. I think I was kind of a pain in the rear <laughs> because I was like so focused and intense and like wanted to know everything. So then I did my PhD, and、um, that worked really well.、Um, I, I I I had a really Uh, strange projects, a very creative project. Just like look, do something and see what happens.、Um, right. I actually made the first、um, circularly permuted amino acid sequence、uh, because at that time、uh, we didn't really know when something gets translated by a ribosome、uh, whether it matters what part comes out. And so what I did is just fused CNN termini and cut it open in another place and made a gene like that. 
and and study the folding of this protein and and people are like why do you want to do this this is never going to work and and it did work and we could publish it really well so that was really super fun and and kind of one of these experiments where you think like why really why are you doing this just because you can um and <laughs> <laughs> and uh you know i think there's a lot of merit to doing science like this you can't do all of your science like this but having the occasional pet project just to kind of poke it and see what happens Uh, it's really prove all the haters wrong. It's not even that. It's just like you know, where do the hypotheses come from if you don't do mm-hmm. weird experiments, right? Right. Yeah. Um, so then, uh, like I said, uh, my husband and I went on a year-long trip uh, to cavort around the country and and not think about science much. And then I, I started a postdoc, uh, and and I really wanted to learn X-ray crystallography, which. Uh, I found fascinating because we had this super boring lecture as a grad student and I was just really fascinated by these little diffraction spots and how you get from there to a structure. So I thought, ah, oh, I'll just learn that. And I applied to this lab and um, this professor said, oh, you know, you can just like solve the structure of the nucleosome. We're almost there. It's almost like <laughs> done. And, and that's how you can learn crystallography and then you can do something more interesting. And he basically didn't tell me that this was one of the hardest projects in structural biology that existed <laughs> at that time. So I was like very blissfully ignorant. I said, like, sure, you know, like roll up my sleeve. Let's do it. Where do I start? <laughs> so, so that took a long time. That took like eight years. Uh, it was oh, wow. a really, um, really, really difficult project. And it was very different to the project I did as a grad student. It was very single-minded, you know, no creativity, just like throw stuff at the wall to see what sticks. And eventually, uh, you know, we managed to pull it off. And um, that then was a pretty big paper and it gave me a pretty um, good um, job prospects. I decided, we decided at that time that we've kind of had it with Europe. It was a little too <laughs> close and you know i grew up there so i should say and and it was a little too close-minded and very male um dominated um at that time and like i said you know it was women weren't that common in faculty positions so so we went to the us and um i actually made the uh the um deliberate decision to rather than go to like one of the ivy leagues to go to a um smaller uh, undergrad institution, Colorado State University, where there was a very strong teaching mission and undergrads. And because I really liked, I, I didn't like the elitist um, types of institutions where you had to pay a lot of money to get mm-hmm. an education. Uh, and so I worked there for 16 years and I started my lab um, with, um, you know, pretty, uh, a lot of enthusiasm from, on behalf of my colleagues, I had to start Uh, structure biology crystallography at that time I had to buy the generator and install all of that stuff so that was really fun um, and then get my program off the off and rolling I got Hughes I got funding and and then after like 16 years or so uh, it was getting a little stale and and you know I still loved it up there but I thought like ah eh, let's just try something a little mix it up a little so I moved like 60 miles down the road to Boulder which is where I am now. Nice. And and we're still doing our thing. And and but you know, ironically, here when I got here, um, this when I when I arrived here, this is just when the resolution revolution in cryo EM took off. 
And so, wouldn't you know it, I, I had to start cryo-EM, <laughs> single particle cryo-EM here. So it's kind of a deja vu all over again. Yeah. Can, you, can I quickly um, bring attention to your one of your undergrads at yeah. CU? I believe one of them has a podcast and I, I listened to it very recently. And in this podcast, I learned that you really like the liver and liver mm -hmm. function. Um, I, I think he wrote a song and like played it for you, for you in the class or something like that. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, of course. Yeah, um, that was so I teach I teach I used to teach um, metabolism and human disease. And it's a pretty difficult class. And, and in the end, um, I used to give them the opportunity to, to get extra credit for creative activities. And that was before ChatGPT. Now you can't do it anymore. Everybody's <laughs> just using ChatGPT, so it's kind of pointless. But at that time, um, that, that particular class was very creative. And I had songs and, and skits and uh, ballads. And, and these guys wrote an original song uh, about uh, the lonely liver. Oh, the, no, the, the, the uh, selfless liver, because I, I make this point in my class that the liver is kind of the Amazon fulfillment center of the body. And there's a lot of things going on and, and it just gives and gives and, and really doesn't keep anything for itself. And so they made a very sad and beautiful song about that. Yeah, it was so good. If, if, if they're still around, tell them that they should go on American Idol. If they want to come to UNC, give them my email for med school. I will, I will tell them. <laughs> I actually, I think I know how to find them. And, and, and I agree. And I think uh, the, the um, woman who sang with him, I think uh, she actually is a songwriter in wow. addition. Wow. So I think I think actually she wrote that song, but I'm not 100% sure. Anymore. Well, it's, it's clear that you have a strong passion for teaching undergraduates. And, and I know we've had this conversation before, but why do you love teaching so much? I, I think you mentioned that it was, it was the feeling of being able to help others, but has that evolved at all? Like, what is your answer now? Um, well, I think it just comes from my own history. Uh, I've, I've experienced what difference it can make, uh, how your teacher teaches you, whether that's at the high school level or at the undergrad level. I think science is fascinating and and more often than not, it's kind of being destroyed by by how it is being taught. So I just really like I just I just I just love science. I love the process of discovery. And, and that's really what I want to pass along to students. Now, um, we're kind of in this teaching revolution, I think. It, it's, I don't know whether you guys still have a lot of like normal traditional classes or whether you have mostly the flipped classroom and the active learning. Uh, I think there's, there's kind of a change in how we think about classroom teaching. Uh, that's for me a little harder to keep up with, um, but uh, I just think it's, it's um, I think the difference you can make in, in a freshman or a second year student by introducing them to, to the process of doing science can be life-changing. And I really, I think that's good. You know, why not affect somebody's life in a good way if you can? Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, speaking of being taught in the classroom and such, like throughout our undergraduate molecular biology classes, like um, Parth and I are only second year, so we've only taken so many, but I'm sure JP has taken many more and you as well. Um, but it was, <laughs> excuse me, it was emphasized, you know, that prokaryotes, they don't really have histones, 
But you just published a paper in Nature, actually, titled Histones with an Unconventional DNA Binding Mode in Vitro are Major Chromatin Constituents in Bacterium Delavibrio Bacteriovorus. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yes, so, yes, so good job. So <laughs> first of all, that species name sounds like a Harry Potter spell. Like, I, I have no idea. You have no, this thing is so, I'll tell you more about this thing, it's so cool. It's like really weird. But did yeah. you have a specific question about that or? Well, it was, uh, can you just give us, you know, us and our listeners a little bit more insight on this and like what it really means for biology moving forward as well? Guys, it's Chinmayan Post again. If what I just said sounded like a completely different language to you, that's exactly what Biocast is here for. Feel free to check out our blog that's coming up alongside this video. It'll explain everything you need to know about what we're going to be talking about next. Thanks, guys. Now, without further ado, let's get back into the episode. Yeah, uh, so I, I try not to overstate it because we've really just only scratched the surface. But um, when you when you look at um, the, any molecular machine in our bodies and you want to know who invented it, where did it come from, you usually go back to the primitive organisms. And for eukaryotes, that would be, for example, uh, Giardia, you know, the, the causative agent of beaver fever, some other single cell organisms that are arguably kind of low on the totem pole. Yeah. And if you look at, uh, at, at the nucleosomes and the, the machinery that deals with them, it's very complicated and it's all already 100% there in those organisms. And so you can't really look at the evolutionary history. It seems like before we even decided to become eukaryotes, we've had to have a pretty good system in place already mm -hmm. to, to organize our genomes. Yeah. Because eukaryotes have these massive genomes, you're really bad at housekeeping, so it's just, you just need some organizing principles. So um, there's these theories that um, the first eukaryote ex came into being by a bacterium eating an archaeon, so archaeobacteria, mm -hmm. and the archaeon gave rise to the nucleus and the bacterium kind of gave rise to the rest and then a lot of other unexplained magic happened and ta-da, <laughs> here we have our eukaryote. Uh, but uh, we've, we've worked on archaeal histones and um, arguably they are the precursor of our own histones but there are a lot of unexplained um, unexplained phenomena and so we started to poke around in bacteria mainly uh, it was a COVID project and everybody was stuck in front of their computers and so you could just do a lot of genome browsing, which is mm -hmm. what my students did. And we started to look at all the giant viruses and we found histones in all of these organisms. So this particular organism, Delavibrio bacteriovorus, I don't know whether you guys speak Latin, but it literally means bacterium eating bacterium. Mm -hmm. Oh wow. Okay. wow. So, so this, this, this guy this guy's amazing. He's very small and, and he swims around and he finds himself with juicy fat E. coli to eat and it burrows itself into the outer cell wall. And uh, most bacteria have two cell walls. They have an outer and an inner one. And so the, in between there's a space. And so this guy lives in between in that space. It closes the door behind him, which is fabulous and it has some really interesting structural implications it lives in there protected then it makes a lot of enzymes it puts them into the cytoplasm of its prey and the enzymes just digest <laughs> the prey bacterium the wow, nutrients wow. leak out it sits there in this nice protected space and it uses all the nutrients to make new bacteria and so this guy has um, 
as histones and um, we don't really know they, they bind DNA very very differently so they really shift the whole paradigm of how we think about histones um, we don't know where it got it from it might have stolen it from some uh, eukaryote and just used them for a different purpose mutated it a little bit to change the binding mode for its own nefarious purposes we are not really sure but in a way this bacterium is almost like a virus mm-hmm. and and speaking of viruses we also work on giant viruses and and these things are literally they've only been discovered in the 2000s and they they are they have been detected so late because traditionally what you use to isolate viruses you filter uh, bacterial or whatever lysates and then whatever goes through is small that's a virus and whatever is large is a bacterium mm-hmm. and so these things are so large that they kind of look like bacteria oh wow and uh, they have histones and they are honest to god viruses they uh, they are also quite bizarre they are large because they their host organism is an amoeba and amoeba like to eat bacteria so these viruses pretend to be bacteria and so they just get eaten and then they get killed by by whatever they are trying to eat so it's like a trojan horse that's amazing is it like a histone optimer type or how many histone proteins do you see are they yeah so so, yeah so for the archaea and for the bacteria we just see a single histone and uh it's a very minimalist histone the giant viruses they have all four histones, but some some of them have them fused in either a single chain or in two different chains, and so they fuse them together. They're also very uh, badly conserved. They don't, they're not similar at all to the host uh, histones. Uh, so it's actually really quite fascinating. And, and also, incidentally, you might have seen um, my collaborator, um, they're, they're going around and digging up permafrost and yeah, yeah. Um, and and you might have heard the zombie virus so they're yeah. they're actually reviving um, giant viruses that are 40,000 years old uh, which is just <laughs> amazing and and so those also that, terrifying those are, it, 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 <laughs> you know it is in a way but uh, they really do infect mostly aquatic life mm-hmm. and uh, but yeah you're not wrong yeah just the fact that we can do that (laughs) it it is very true but uh but these are the types of viruses that we work with Uh, unfortunately the zombie viruses those particular ones don't have histones which really bums me out because Mm. i would have loved to work on them but uh we're we're constantly looking around for weird critters that might have histones and how look at how they use them yeah. So you've obviously done a lot of lot of interesting work, a lot of work in general, um, with the nucleosome. You mentioned the histones now, um, and on your Wikipedia page, it's highlighted that you solved the like the three D structure of like chromatin, which is kind of like a superhero of the cellular world. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So could you talk a talk a little bit about how you got involved with the molecular superhero? And how you got the idea for like projects in the first place, the implications mm. like you predict on that discovery, like having and what, what it's already had. And most importantly, like how it feels to have a Wikipedia page on yourself. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, everybody can make a Wikipedia page. It's not, I think I think I don't know. I, I, I don't think that's such an amazing accomplishment. But um, 
I, I actually, when I started to work on chromatin and nucleosome, I thought they were really boring. And at that time, they were actually considered to be very boring. Um, all the cool kids were working on transcription factors and, <laughs> and TDP and TF2D and all these kinds of things. That was kind of the big thing, activators. And everybody thought nucleosomes were very boring. Now, I just really wanted to learn structural biology because I'm a very visual person. And I and and to me that's just I, I just love to do science that way. And you know everybody's different. Like cell biology, I tried that as an undergrad. I just thought it was very boring. I just really like to look at atoms. What can I say? <laughs> and so and so then you know I I for the longest time I really still didn't think it was that interesting. And while we were in the process of making that discovery or working on this project. Um, the community independently realized how important these things were, um, and 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 uh, so the timing was really good. Uh, in terms of like making that big discovery, you know, it's 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 really cool. Like you guys are also in in labs and JP also. So so you are the expert. You're the only people who know a certain thing. It's true though. Like from your project, nobody else knows what you know. So that is kind of cool, right? And uh, but. But I didn't actually didn't I didn't know that uh, that was the case. So strangely enough, when I gave a seminar, my first seminar about this big structure that nobody had seen, um, I flew to Chicago and I was invited to give a talk there. And I stayed up during the whole like 10 hour flight because I thought, oh, my God, what if they asked me about this amino acid? What about if they asked me about that? It's like they wouldn't even know what to ask because they'd never seen <laughs> the structure. But that I was just terrified that hadn't really occurred to them, to me, that that they wouldn't really know because they don't, didn't have the information. So, you know, that's kind of um, just I really like the uh, the process of discovery probably as much as the result, just designing the experiment and trying to trick the system so it can observe the unobservable. Uh, and, you know, the brain, like one of you, I think Parth is, is, in, is interested in neuro. You yeah. know, that, that, that is just a tremendously difficult problem. And, and I think we have to devise methods and tricks and approaches uh, and think out of left field how we can actually observe what's happening. So it's really that part of the of the process that intrigues me more than the actual discovery, to be honest. It's a great how answer. Yeah, how do you train Parth to do that then? How can we train Parth oh. to study the brain like that? <laughs> you you know, I I think so so I, I have actually two two messages that I want want everybody who's engaging in science to know. First, um, if you if most of the time your experiments don't work or they give you unexpected results, right? And it's like not what expected and your gut reaction is like, ugh, that's just horrible. Like I have to redo it. I have to do it over again. And my mantra is like, sit down and think about what this, what this could tell you, apart from the fact that you don't know how to type it, which, you know, sometimes that is, <laughs> that is the case or you forgot to add something. But let's say you forgot to add something and you see a weird observation. Don't just say like, well, that sucks. I got to do it again. But say like, well, okay, I get this really weird result because I forgot to add ATP or magnesium or whatever. And look what I find. Could that be something? And so uh, in a lot of cases, um, 
I think a lot of really seminal discoveries have come from this, ha, huh, that's weird, I wonder what's going on here, uh, rather than, you know, feeling bad and just throwing it away and moving on. So, so my, my students always laugh at me because, because I, I keep telling them, like, your experiment is talking to you, you just have to listen, right? It's trying to tell you something. It doesn't just tell you you're a failure, it tells you something important. <laughs> Sometimes it does. <laughs> you know, sometimes, but you know, like imagine like 99% it just tells you garbage, but like that one time it tells you something important and you didn't listen, that would be horrible, right? Yeah. <laughs> so, so that's that's one, one, uh, one of my mantras, I think, is kind of you, it's almost like making lemonade, right? From, from <laughs> lemons, and then the second is, um. You know, a lot of my undergrads, they, they want to work on drug design or cancer or Alzheimer's. And, you know, that's that's all good and, and laudable. Um, but I do think you need to leave room for for studying strange systems. And if you look back um, to, for example, the discovery of CRISPR, the CRISPR gene, genome editing system, if you look back to restriction enzymes, penicillin, a lot of these discoveries, I would say actually the majority of transformative discoveries have come from people just poking around in weird systems just out of pure curiosity without like having the goal in mind of curing cancer. So leave a little room for that as well. And also it's like wicked fun, honestly. <laughs> and also added bonus, it's not quite as competitive as some of the other uh, projects might be. I'm curious about finding funding for for innovative ideas like that. You know, I, I think the that's the field of what um, oh, I'm blanking on. It's um, not natural. It's natural product research, right? It's it's mm-hmm. yeah. So well, I rem- you know, it's it's not it's not even that. But you raise a good point. Funding for yeah. these kinds of things, nobody will give you money, right? So that is a problem. Yeah. Um, so you know, you you start with small pilot experiments that uh, just poke around a little, see whether you can get a hook, and then see whether you can get some data, and then you convince somebody that this actually might be interesting. Uh, and you know, I I agree, it is very hard, and so I'm really fortunate to have funding from HHMI because they let me do <laughs> this kind of stuff. They they well, just want it to be interesting. Yeah, yeah, or we can just join your lab. And you can find that. Hey, you know, absolutely. Uh, I, uh, yeah, just apply, of course. <laughs> yeah. So, would you say a lot of like that funding process initially coming from someone who you know doesn't isn't in your lab or like um, doesn't have the HHMI? Is it like luck? Like, would they have to rely on like getting lucky with the amount of small funding that they have or small like stuff that they have, and then just moving from there or? Yeah, for sure. Uh, it's luck. It's also instincts of uh, just, it's really hard to describe. And, and you know, nobody has a perfect success rate. And, yeah. and I don't either. We've had projects that were complete duds, of course, right? That's, but um, it's kind of when something really grips your imagination and you really have that gut feeling like, oh my God, they mm. might be onto something. Mm. Then, you know, that's a good time to read a little more, to talk to a couple of people. Uh, you might be, you might have to be careful not to give too much away, you know, <laughs> sometimes things can be a little competitive. Mm. Um, and, you know, more often than not, like, oh, 
yeah, well, that can't work because it's been done already or somebody, you know, you think it through. But then you can actually go and do, we started a lot of cool experiments and cool lines of research with undergrads, uh, mm-hmm. just poking around a little because for them, even if it fails, they still get good training. I'm right. not jeopardizing their PhD. Mm-hmm. They still learn the basics of science. Mm-hmm. And um, so that's a relatively cost-effective way of doing business Um, and then it it is it is I'm not gonna lie it's hard because funding agencies especially the federal ones are very conservative and they have to be because it's taxpayer money and they can't be viewed as being frivolous yeah so that's a bit of a conundrum yeah and even even with a lot of like the federal funded agencies like compared to this is this is a bit more political i guess but like compared to some of the other branches of the government or like uh, other subsidiaries like they don't get as much money at all so yeah we won't mention any any other yeah. funding <laughs> any other agency <coughs> the military <coughs> no, well, no yeah no <laughs> no because um it is very true and you know admittedly um i i think we're the us is is pretty good and um, there's actually more and more realization to fund that kind of basic research that I'm talking about as, as well. However, at many universities, for some reason, they go the opposite way and everything has to be translational, which I think is a huge mistake. And uh, I hope they kind of start to see the light and everything has to be like small business and, and translational and to the clinic. And, and, and I just, I think that there's a lot of need for that but there's also a lot of need for just the pure curiosity driven uh, projects awesome i don't know who's supposed to talk next <laughs> <laughs> i've just been riffing um but, but carolyn so what do you think is next for the field of structural biology so it's <laughs> like you know we're moving into yeah, non-eukaryotic stuff, maybe. maybe we're trying to play around a little bit, but what do you think is, is next? I know, like for me in the transcription field, we're still trying to figure out 3D chromatin structure and we need structural biologists for that. We don't know how enhancers work, but in, in your little uh, uh, niche of structural biology, what do you think are the big big things? Is it RNA pulse 2? Is it... You know, I, I think that's pretty much being done. Uh, there's a number of fabulous labs that are making progress in leaps and bounds. It's really quite impressive. Um, I think generally um, looking at uh, looking at these complexes, observing them at work, at doing their job in their natural context, that is like dynamite. Imagine if you could if you could just watch a polymerase like doing its thing in the cell. <laughs> that would be amazing, right? And and I Truly, the field is moving in that direction, uh, and and so especially the field of cryo-electron tomography, where you uh, where you can actually thin slice cells and then put them under the microscope and and see some quite astonishing resolution. So that's really where things are is things are going. Uh, the 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 other really important aspect that's being lost by those static approaches like cryo-EM and crystallography are uh, that they're static pictures and we really want to see things in movement. And now there's approaches where they're called single molecule approaches where you can like string them up between magnetic beads and then watch them do their thing. That's a very 
um, artificial system. It provides a lot of really important information. It's a very artificial system. But that's what I'm saying. If you can get the movement, the dynamic aspect into structural biology, that would be dynamite. Yeah. And I think we're going to get there. I really do. What do you think the timeline for something like that looks like? You know, it's, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's so hard. I, I, I have no idea. I, there's a lot of really, really smart young people uh, making amazing project, progress. Like, for example, I would, I would never have imagined that we can just plug in an amino acid sequence and get a, right. really, a really pretty good prediction of a fault out. Yeah. Uh, to me, that is amazing. And that's really been transformative also. So, you know, I, I have no idea what you guys are all capable of. Um, I think the sky's the limit. Like, I'm, I'm not part of this anymore because uh, <laughs> uh, I'm not the future, but you guys are the future, right? So well, the future is the present, right? Like, like, I think you are giving us a voice and platform and you are inspiring us to be the future of science. So I, I do think that there is a place for you and you're still doing wild stuff so i don't know what you're talking about well we're, no, we're, we're doing we're doing pretty wild stuff but what i'm saying is and and thank you for that because i really do aspire to to inspire the next generation but uh we're not we're not pushing uh the technology forward i think that's really not something that we're good at we're applying methodologies and and we are looking in unexpected places granted uh and we're finding unexpected things but we're not really uh, pushing microscopy forward, for example, instrument development, computational development. You know, there's people who write software that allows us to do things with our raw data that hasn't been possible before. Um, so, so that's what I'm talking about. And and I think it's just like uh, this this fearlessness that that you guys have, your young people have. Like, oh yeah, let's just do it. Like, why not? Uh, that that kind of goes away as people get older, and so that's why I'm saying, like, you know, you guys are the future because um, you don't know how you, you you don't really care that much if it doesn't work, right? <laughs> We're still I think, <laughs> I think the future still needs current, excellent, present mentors, and you're absolutely one of them. So, well, thank you. Yeah, regardless. So I'm not quite obsolete yet. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I wish I went back to school and if I could do it over again, I, I would do what Chinmay's doing and I would actually probably do biomedical engineering and data mm-hmm. science because mm-hmm. I think the skills you're learning in both of those, you're versatile enough to where you can handle a computer, you're versatile enough to go to med school, you're versatile enough to create new technology. Mm-hmm. Uh, if I could go back and I and do it again, I would actually... But you can. Uh, like, you know, I'm really, I'm, really, I'm really opposed to this, you know, boxing yourself in. Like you can absolutely do a postdoc in biomedical engineering. Why the heck not? You know, yeah. there's, there, there's not, the boundaries are not nearly as solid. And this is my other piece of advice that I would give you guys, you know, don't feel like, oh, like this is my major and now I have to like walk on that path. And I think actually the best science comes from people who really kind of look over the fence and say like, huh, let me see what's over there. And I can, I can talk to people over there. And if you think back, towards like the old days of you know Watson Crick and Rosalind Franklin and the all these people mm. they're all physicists and chemists and they were embarking on this wild squishy biology thing and and they came out of left field so i think yeah. there's really a lot of merit in that as well they had some pretty crazy discoveries as well <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Also involving X-ray crystallography. One or two important ones, yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> I guess. <laughs> I give them that. <laughs> cool. That's all the questions I had from my from my end. But I don't know if Chinmay and, and Parth have any. I think we're good. Parth? Yeah, I think I think that wraps it up. Like you've offered some great perspectives, great advice. Like we really appreciate your time. Oh, super! No, this is, this is this is great fun. You know, just just you know, don't don't take don't take this too seriously. You know, have I mean, it sounds like old people always tell young people to have fun, but like have fun honestly. Uh, this is as good as it gets. You know, enjoy the process of discovery. Don't obsess too much about. Uh, the future and and the path forward and just you know go yeah. where where your curiosity takes you <laughs>